Hello and welcome to Stories of Sacrifice, a new series from Prodcast where we'll be giving victims of terrorism within the Orange family a platform to share their stories. Stories that are so important to tell and to make a first-hand permanent record of and make sure our past and the truth of what happened here is never forgotten. The way Prodcast think this is especially important in the Northern Ireland that we're living in today, where terrorists sit in government and they and those that put them there seek to try and rewrite Barry and forget the violence, the murder and the human cost that had such a profound impact on lives across the province. So over the next few episodes we'll be listening to some extremely moving stories from victims that are, yes, hard to listen to, but so important to hear and to preserve for generations to come. So this week we're joined by Sammy Heenan, who tells a story of how he was orphaned at only 12 years old when the IRA brutally murdered his father, William. So what was life like for you, Sammy, before your father's murder? Life for me, I have to say, was very idyllic. I was born on the 4th of July 1972 and we lived in probably one of the most rural and isolated parts of Northern Ireland, uh, the Dromara Hills in rural County Down. I lived with my father and my grandmother at that point. And I suppose my abiding memory of childhood was one of loneliness and isolation due to the rural area in which we lived. But, you know, there wasn't many opportunities for young people. There wasn't like it is today. You couldn't be part of a football team or the primary school which I attended. There's only 14 pupils in the entire school. So on that basis, you know, it was quite quiet existence. But I was very happy. I was very content. And it was the one thing that I always lived for. Uh, my daddy was a member of Legging on the Accordion Band. And I loved just getting to the Orange Hall and being part of that, even as a young boy. So it was very much part of my life at that time. Your family life changed forever, Sammy, on the 3rd of May 1985. Um, I'm just wondering, could you give us some of the details around that? Yeah, it was a very, very traumatic time for me uh, as a young boy. Um, even I could go back to, to 1981 when I was nine years old. And I remember waking up that morning, it was heavy snow, I was off school as a result of a heavy snowfall. I was home alone that day with my grandmother and she was very, very ill, very sick and I was very concerned. Uh, several times she asked me that day the question, when I miss her thing happened? So I gave the usual answers a child would and paid no more attention to the question. And then that evening, four o'clock, we both sat down to watch TV and her head slumped forward and she died in a chair sitting beside me. I started to sob and cry. I didn't know what to do. I tried to get help but no phone. I was stranded there, I, I ran outside, couldn't get down the hill with the heavy snow and I just stood and I sobbed and I cried until I was found 10 minutes later, which seemed like an eternity by a neighbour. And then it was a very, very difficult time for me. Life became very insecure, very frightening due to the trauma I encountered that evening. And sadly, four months later, a 43-year-old mother, she passed away as a result of a brain hemorrhage. I took ill that night, I found her and I wakened my father. Um, she was very ill. And my dad says, will you stay with your mum while I go for help? But I couldn't stay on my own. So I had to cycle half a mile in the middle of the night to raise the alarm. But as I say, sadly, my mummy passed away. And it was very, very devastating for my father and I because he was all that I had in life. He was my Iraq. He was my inspiration. Um, he adapted to the roles was required to bring up his only child and yet continue on to work. So I relied upon him so much, but my insecurities intensified just due to the fact it was him and I and always thought if something happened to him, what would I do? Um, I started Castle in High School in 1984 and life was starting to get good again in the sense that I was getting my confidence back and made new friends. And that was until the 3rd of May 1985 when I was 12 years old. Uh, it was 7 a.m. in the morning and I can remember my daddy coming down into the bedroom to say, Sammy, will you lie on? He says, because I'm going out to feed a small, a small number of hens that we had. I drifted back to sleep and I was going to really describe of being awakened by uh, a painful, piercing yell. 
and a gunshot. And I woke up and I thought first thing came into my mind was was my daddy out shooting crows. Discounted that theory because I looked across in the corner of the room and his legally held firearms were stacked up against the wall. So I crawled across the bed and I went to the window and I just sat with my chin in my hand and I looked out, rubbed the morning dew of the inside of the window. And I heard my daddy's car start up and I listened intently uh, as this car burst down the street. And I was only about maybe four metres away and I, uh, as I looked out I could see a man uh, reversing my father's car away, a man I didn't know, a man who had a wee duffel coat on him, a tea cosy cap. And I thought he was looking at me as I was looking at him but I think he was just looking over his shoulder to make his, uh, make sure he didn't clip the corner of the wall, he was trying to make his getaway. And I watched that car drive down that road across another road until it was out of sight and at this stage I could feel a real sickness, fear and unease overcoming over me. That was something badly wrong here. I made my way out of the out of the front door, up to the top of the street, and I noticed a, a small pool of blood lying in the yard with a wee jug lying smashed in it. And as I followed the trail of blood around the side of the barn, the image that I encountered that morning of something that will never ever leave me was uh, was to, to witness my daddy lying dead in the street. I just stood over him and I started to sob and I started to cry and I didn't know what to do. And we had a phone, but I forgot we had the phone. We only had it installed a week. I tried to get my bicycle out of the barn. I couldn't find the keys. And all I could do was run. And I started to run uh, a ha- uh, half mile journey to the nearest neighbor's house uh, to raise the alarm. But and I was hoping someone would come to my aid that time of the morning. But of course, in such a rural area, the roads were very, very quiet. I could feel my asthma starting to play up, but just with the shock and the trauma. But I eventually got to the neighbor's house in a very distressed state. And they ran back up with me. Up to the family home, but at this stage, um, death uh, was instantaneous for my father. My father was lying dead in the street, and I was taken in, and, and I was comforted. The people started to arrive. The security forces sealed off the area. But family I had left uh, started to arrive at the house. My minister came within, I suppose, within the hour. But it was a very, very traumatic, a very, very difficult morning. About one week later, a provisional IRA in South Down claimed my father's murder, stating that he was an RUC reservist. My father had no connection with security forces, albeit his membership of the Ulster Special Constabulary some 15 years previous. Some people alluded to the theory that it was mistaken identity, but it wasn't because in the IRA claim that had my father's car registration number. I later found out that the gunman was dropped off at her home that morning uh, at 6.30. His accomplice made his way to Drumcura Forest Park and waited there. The gunman hid in an outside toilet and as my father approached the top yard that morning, he did have a habit of looking out over the countryside because we had a fantastic view of the Moor Mountains. Where he was standing, the gunman walked up behind him, forced him to his knees and he shot him twice in the top of the head at point blank range before dragging his body away to the side of the barn. There's many unique aspects to my father's murder, which was alluded to by the historical inquiries team, by many other people who of a security background. In that terrace and all in Ireland never leave their getaway to chance. So how was that gunman, one gunman that morning, so confident of securing my father's car keys to make his escape in my father's car? Because if he had not found the car keys that morning, how was he going to get away? Because his accomplice was already in Drumcure Forest Park and there was no mo- mobile phones in them days to call for assistance. So the, the gun that was used to murder my father was an old Webley revolver. It had never been used before in the Troubles and has never been used since. And there was no ammunition compatible with the gun. So it actually had to modify ammunition to suit the gun, which was modified from an old shotgun cartridge that improvised the lead shot taken out, and obviously that would only increase the risk of malfunction. So why was that gunman, who was obviously um, a very, very fanatic and dedicated terrorist, because security people told me that a number of provisional IRA activists preferred an undercar booby trap, where it wasn't to kill people because it wasn't up close and personal, but to be to come up 
to force a man to his knees and shoot him in the top of the head was an up-close and personal professional hit. So why was he using such a, a weapon that wasn't maybe not just as reliable as others? So it was, uh, there's a lot of questions surrounding that. No intelligence prior to the murder, which could have prevented the murder. But intelligence did come in after to state that there's two prominent Republican activists identified at the house in the locality, but the HET report did not define locality. It could have been a two-mile radius, it could have been a five-mile radius, but one of those individuals was stopped on the murder route the evening before. So there was one person arrested uh, for my father's murder in 1987, but no charges were forthcoming. So to date, uh, no one has been made amenable for the murder of my father on the 3rd of May 1985. So can you tell us what life was like after your father's murder then? Well, as I say, it was very, very difficult because then I had to make a decision of where I was going to live um, because my father was an only child and my mother's family really didn't step up to the level it was required. So then I had to make a decision and I had, my daddy had cousins who lived in Castlewell and he had cousins who lived in Dramara. I opted for Castlewell simply because I had my first year over at Castlewell High School and I wanted some sort of continuity. I had friends there and I just, I liked the idea of going back to the school because I had a very, very good first form in that, in that school. So I have to say if it was, you know, the, the the trauma and the pain and the anguish of losing your daddy, the man that you idolised, the man that you loved, and he was all that he had in life. He was now gone. It was it, there was instability. Although the, where I went to live, the very very good uh, and got support. And I have to say, the church, in particular, the Reverend Robert Jones, stepped up to the level it was required and provided me with immense pastoral support, which was like so many other victims around Northern Ireland at that particular time. The church was very much an important part of my life. Uh, there was happy moments too, as I say, when I got to visit America and stay with the family for six weeks respite. I also was a recipient of a Child of Courage Award from the late Princess Diana. So there was happy times as well. But as I say, there was a void in my life. And I suppose I was susceptible to malignant forces in my life. But I was set on a path early from, by my father that I could never have went down the road of revenge or retribution because I was not brought up that way. And I could not have visited misery and all a family like what was visited upon mine. And those people who tried to say today there was justification for violence in Northern Ireland, there was no justification for the taking of anyone's life within the context of the Northern Ireland Troubles. And for anybody to suggest that or allude to that, they're engaging in their own form of putrid revisionism. So could you tell us something about the role that the Orient Institution has played in your life, Sammy? Well, as a young boy, as I say, all I wanted to do was following my father's footsteps. I've already spoke off the importance of legging on the accordion band. And I can remember the 12th of July, 1982, where I was deemed ready for the band and I, it was the proudest moment of my life standing as a wee boy at nine years old with my daddy uh, drumming and legging on the accordion band. So following that, after my father's murder, I could not wait uh, to join the Orange Institution uh, at 16 years old and I remember my initiation and I have to say it was very, very powerful, very, very poignant but little did I realise the impact, the spiritual impact that that organisation was going to have upon my life because in those days, as it is today, there's traditions of Orange services where you would have went to your neighbour and lodge support them and um, at that time I, I started to realise about uh, my need of, of the saviour or the gospel message started to have an impact upon my life. I'd heard um, different pastors, preachers, lay chaplains and you know visiting men who were taking services talk about those uh, those born again and salvation and, and the cross and, and um, you know little did I realise that a battle was commencing in my life, a spiritual battle at that particular time and there was times that I was 
thinking about the things of God, I was questioning, I was challenging, and there's other times, you know, I'd have to back into the ways of the world, and that I'll continue on, I suppose, for the next um, three or four years. So I, I am privileged today to be a believer and, uh, and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, I have, uh, you know, I have been my share of my testimony r- around different churches and orange halls and community associations around uh, Northern Ireland, the length and breadth of Northern Ireland. But I always say, that no matter where I go, one of the proudest things that I am is an orange man due to the impact it had upon my life. And sometimes I do get quite frustrated due to the prejudice and, dare I say, the ignorance of many in the church today who dismiss and demean um, the role of the traditional orange service as if somehow that is barrier to outreach. But, you know, here's an opportunity that the orange institution is affording to the church to bring men into the church to come under the sound of the gospel and the church should embrace that and take that on board and use every opportunity to present the gospel to uh, men and women the length and breadth of uh, this province. Men who, women who love their culture, who love their tradition and accept it and respect it. So increasingly we're seeing particularly young people now engage in the glorification of terrorism. We see this at things like the West Belfast Festival uh, and other such events. As a victim of terrorism, can you share what your perspective is on that? We face today a relentless campaign of historical revisionism. We look back upon what we commonly know as the Troubles, where over 3,500 people were murdered in within Northern Ireland and abroad. And 90% of those people were murdered by terrorists, 60% by Republican terrorism. And what we witness from the Republican community is a machine like Sinn Féin trying to distort the narrative of our troubled past, which is gaining traction now. In 2023, they have the resources, they have the skill set, they have the the finance to engage in this. And it is something that does cause great hurt. It causes traumatism because, um, you know, people suffered so much and their loved ones went out to defend this country from the scourge of terrorism. And now we're facing a situation where uh, the terrorist is portraying himself as a freedom fighter, as a revolutionary, as someone who was engaging in this these acts to defend their own community, which actually weren't because it was nothing but depraved, psychotic, unhinged. And uh, like in the case of my father, walk up behind him to force him to his knees and shoot him twice in the head. How did that advance a United Ireland? How did that protect the nationalist community? We have to expose that. We have to defend the memory and the integrity of our loved ones against this revisionist onslaught. So when we see young people engaging this triumphalism, um, it's something we must challenge. It is imperative in 2023 that we use every opportunity at our disposal, whether it be social media, whether it be uh, talks like these podcasts, um, to challenge this because it is so important that we convey the message to the next generation that they appreciate the sacrifice that was made in their name to give them a future that they hold today free from terrorist tyranny and oppression. So I do every I utilize every opportunity I get to challenge and confront this, as do many other victims, many other victims groups. And I know the Orange Institution is very much to the fore in that in remembering their 342 Orange Braille, nearly 10% of all people murdered in the Troubles who served in the security forces, who were involved in political life, involved in civilian life to make Northern Ireland a better place, who, who these people were murdered and when they were sometimes at their most vulnerable. So it is so important now that we do confront this. We do not step back. We do remind people of the sacrifice that was made to give Northern Ireland a better future. Finally then, in regards to the Northern Ireland Troubles, what would your advice be to the next generation? I would encourage them to read up in their history, to understand, to appreciate the sacrifice, as I say again, that was made uh, for their future. But we have a responsibility as a present generation 
Uh, people ask me, what do we do? What's the best means of moving forward in terms to confront this revisionism? And that is simply to tell your children, to tell your grandchildren about what happened in the past. We're not telling them to radicalize them or instill hatred. It's about a reminder because if we don't tell them the truth, they're going to be susceptible to a very, very distorted narrative uh, by this machine, as we talk about within the Sinn Féin movement. And unfortunately, I believe that this glorification is now systemic within many young nationalists. Many young unionists are gravitating towards the centre ground, but many young nationalists seem to be moving in the direction of, of terrorist glorification. When you see young people in their thousands at the, the festival in West Belfast, you see them at a Wolf Tone Festival singing, Ooh, ah, up the ra. You know what? It, it just it causes so much hurt. It causes so much uh, frustration because the Provisional IRA were an organisation that murdered over 300 Catholic people members of their own community and these young people are celebrating the deaths of innocent people from both communities. That's something you must challenge and it is imperative going forward that we do everything in our power to confront this false narrative. I think all that remains to be said here is thank you to Sammy Heenan for coming and sharing his incredibly powerful story with us and thank you to, for listening and taking the time out to reflect on what is an incredibly hard story to hear but an important one nonetheless and encourage everyone to share this episode with your friends your family whatsapp groups facebook and all your social media channels and get important stories like this out there into the world and try and do your bit to confront this revisionism that sammy spoke about in the episode today